Since 2009, SharesPost has been a leader in the secondary market for private company shares. With its network of 44,000 accredited investors and 150,000 members, SharesPost has transacted in more than 200 companies. Whether you're an investor or a shareholder looking for liquidity, SharesPost has a solution for you. Visit us at SharesPost.com. Welcome to Equity Shot, a special episode today about Spotify's debut. I'm Katie Roof, Crunchbase News Editor-in-Chief Alex Wilhelm. Hey, hey. And our special guest today is David Golden, who's a managing partner at Revolution Ventures. And he also used to be vice chairman at J.P. Morgan, where he oversaw the TMT business. Basically, he did a lot of tech IPOs. So he's really relevant for this direct listing topic. So uh, Spotify... For those of you who didn't follow, it it opened on the New York Stock Exchange at $165.90, so $165.90 per share. It was pretty high, uh, which gave the company a market value of almost $30 billion, $29.5 billion. Um, but it kind of went down it, it went down 10% during the day, and it closed at $149.01, um, which is still gives it a, a market value of about $26.5 billion. So it's a lot of money. Uh, even though the first day went down, it's still significantly above where it had been invested at and where it had traded in the private markets leading up to this event. And it had a reference price of 132 before, which is kind of a benchmark based on prior private transactions to let us know kind of roughly if it was up or down compared to where it was before. So it was up from that point. Exactly. Uh, that was $132 a share point, and that was the top of where it traded in recent months on the private markets ahead of this debut. And if you compare it to that point, then it was up today about 13%. But, um, you know, I don't think that's really the right point to be <laughs> it's to be trading on. They just wanted to make it. I mean, I mean, you can say that it is in the sense that it's up from where it was trading pre. I'm not going to say IPO because it wasn't an IPO, but it's it's up from where it had been trading recently. But it's not up from where investors invested at today. That is that's a long way of saying the direct listing was a success mostly. I think we're well, for, I, think. I would say it's a success for Spotify, but not a success for stock market investors. I think that's probably right. It's a it's a very illiquid security right now, so it's hard to draw very many conclusions on what this price actually means. Good for you for catching yourself and not calling it an IPO that distinguishes you from almost every other journalist in the country today. Burn. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> because it, because it, no, because it is a direct listing, and that's a strange bird. We yeah. don't see those very often, and they have historically been the province of companies you have never heard of in the sub-sub-sub-micro-cap world. A lot of reasons for why they went down this path. It's probably best to understand them as the principal reason you go public in the first place. If you do an IPO, note IPO, you have three goals. You want to raise cash, you want to create an acquisition currency, publicly traded stock that you can use, and you want to provide liquidity for your investors, your employees, your investors, those people who have been with you for a long time. Spotify didn't need to do the first of those. It had plenty of cash. So its approach was kind of sticking their finger in the eye of Wall Street. (laughs) We're just going to declare our stock publicly traded. I make that sound easier than it is. You have to go through the SEC. You have to file a ton of papers. But on the effective date, your shares are freely tradable and let the market dictate the price. You avoid the underwriting. You avoid the bankers telling you what you're worth. You let the market figure it out. But you give up control in the process. 
So you give up control and you don't raise new capital. And that just seems to me to be a weird equation to take on because Spotify did, as we know, end up paying some fees to the banking classes. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing everyone had been saying around here is, oh, well, this is a great way to stick it to the bankers. But actually, it's not because they were still paying uh, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs and Allen and Company. Uh, they also worked with a market maker. So they they worked with a lot of the usual players and paid them money. They, they did work with the usual players. I think they paid over $50 million in fees. I think they would call them <laughs> advisory fees. <laughs> Um, but they then didn't, they didn't raise money with it. They didn't raise any money. So they didn't stick it to the bankers. They did stick it to the sales force at those firms. Normally, when you go public, when you do an IPO, your underwriting commission that you're paid is distributed among the guys who put the book together, the guys who sell the shares, the bankers who write the prospectus, people who organize the project. A lot of mouths to feed. In, in, within an investment. Here, there were very few miles to feed. And so those bankers are probably extremely happy because they don't have to share those fees. But interestingly, if they'd taken the $50 million and paid it in underwriting commissions, they could have raised between one and a half and $2 billion and put it on their balance sheet today. Yeah. And they're losing a lot of money. So that, that could have been helpful. But uh, that, that's about roughly the amount of money they lost in a single year. But they say they don't need the money. I mean, technically, they raised a ton of money ahead of, of the not IPO, <laughs> ahead of going public. They raised a lot of both equity and debt. So they said they don't need it. But um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a different scenario. Though some One positive is there's no lockup period. So that means that normally when an IPO happens, uh, in, investors or or early shareholders, especially employees, are often restricted from selling for roughly six months following the debut. And that sometimes puts downward pressure on the stock leading up to the lockup expiration because people are wondering, uh, you know, what's going to happen? Are a lot of employees, a lot of insiders going to sell shares? And so some people wait until after that point to invest. I mean, it really can depend on on um, what what's um, what they think is going to happen with the lockup. But it eliminated that uncertainty. On day one. Kind of, but but we didn't know how many shares were going to be put up for trade. So I feel like the size of the float was such a variable, at least from my outsider's perspective. I mean, Katie makes a very solid point about how this normally goes. But in a direct listing, when I feel a bit over my skis, what if all of a sudden no one decided to put up their shares? Then you would have no float and tons of demand spiking the price artificially. Which may have been what happened. May have been and what actually, happened today. Yeah, it'd be good to find out we, uh, uh, exactly you know what the float was here. Because sometimes, I mean, a lot of co- times companies do this on purpose, where they do a low float IPO, where they deliberately release a small amount of shares to cause a spike in the price on day one. But uh, what could have happened here was uh, it could have been even lower than a lot of those low float IPOs because it was entirely dependent on Spotify insiders deciding to sell shares today. And if they didn't do that, then there weren't enough to do and that weren't enough to buy, thus driving up the price. I think that's exactly right. I, the, the, the float was very constrained today. And it is likely to be for a few days while the price settles out. That said, unlike a traditional IPO, virtually every share of this company is saleable. That's typically not true in an IPO. Normally, it's a very constrained amount that's saleable. The lockup you refer to isn't a legal requirement. It's a contract between underwriters and insiders so that they can manage the trading activity. Here, there are no underwriters. There's no contract. There's no lockup. So literally every share could hit the sale 
uh, the sale button tomorrow. I think that's unlikely. I think people are going to wait. But my own sense is there's more downside price bias here for the next few months than upside price bias. The other thing to note about the lockup, um, the, 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 one of the reasons we mentioned you could go public was so that you would provide liquidity for your insiders, and they have done that in a big way. Yes. Two of their insiders are TPG and Dragoneer, who invested a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was widely reported at the time that when they invested, they had a conversion feature on their security that, that ticked with the passage of time. With each passing quarter that they were not public, that security got more expensive. So now that they are public and that security, the underlying shares of that security are freely tradable, it's taken that pressure off. But I got to believe those guys are going to And they the actually exit. resolved that ahead of going public. Um, but that was, yeah, they had some cumbersome debt terms. And some people think this was, this whole direct listing thing was originally devised to avoid some of that. But they wound up solving that scenario ahead of time and decided to go through with the direct listing anyway. But, you know, also a couple things to keep in mind. Spotify is a Swedish company. And these things happen very differently in Europe. A lot of people, some people in Europe look at the U.S. IPO process as kind of unusual. And, um, and yes. but, but actually, one thing that was funny, though, was uh, the New York Stock Exchange, they wanted to welcome the Swedish Spotify to their exchange, but they put up a Swiss flag instead of Sweden. You know, Switzerland, Sweden, same thing, right? No, I mean seriously, no, that, that's they're a real thing colors, that happened. Aren't they? Like, they look different. The flags are very different looking, but I mean, that's bad. But here's, I don't know. here's going back to the the debt. It's it's ironic to me that they took on this expensive debt that had cumbersome terms to use the phrase, and then. A couple years later, they're like, yeah, you know what? When we go public, we won't even need to raise money. We have tons of money. It's You pay so much on that debt. You take on that risk, essentially, from a financial perspective. And then later on, you're like, well, we'll just go through a direct listing. Like, you would think they would still need money if they're willing to raise such expensive and odd capital so recently before. Sure. And for a company that's trading at a $26, $27 billion valuation today, equity is awfully cheap. I I would have run to the exits and raised some money and put it on my balance sheet. I would have. So So do you think we'll see more direct listings after this? I do not think so. I think this was a one-off. When you think what's required, A, you're going public, but you don't need cash. B, <laughs> B you've, got a, you've got a market-dominant position and a, well, and a well-understood name globally. C, you could really write your own ticket as it relates to underwriting those shares if you had wanted to do a traditional IPO. Those are f- features that are just very hard to find. The sun, the moon, and the stars have to align. I won't say never, but this is not the start of any trend. But you said earlier on that this direct listing is usually the province of the micro, micro, micro stock who's hidden behind the cliff inside the shadows. Yes. So they don't have the sun, moon, and stars. They don't even have, like, sticky little um, things for their their – they bedroom uh, the little sunburn stickers you put on your uh, ceiling. The and ceiling, they glow in the dark. There the, we go. The glow in the dark stars. In the no, the ones that and, and there are a handful of biotech companies that have done this. Their market caps were all under a hundred million dollars, and they did it because they had to. No underwriter would take them, so they filed the papers with the SEC. Presto changeo, six months later overnight, they are publicly traded. And now they have an acquisition currency, and that was a goal where they could use that publicly traded stock and go buy stuff to turn. But in tech itself, you don't anticipate this becoming. I, I mean, Dropbox. Thinking back to a very recent IPO that we talked about a bunch on the show, and that was you know had tons of money, was cash flow positive, and had a huge brand name. They could have done this, but they went the traditional route, 
and raised quite a lot of money. They raised a lot of money in a very successful IPO that they should feel very good about and their investors should feel very good about. And I don't want to be an apologist for Wall Street because Wall Street certainly has its faults. But paying bankers to underwrite your shares, they actually do provide some value. They figure out who the buyers are. They provide aftermarket stabilization. They cover you in research. They put a book together. They know where the bodies are buried a year from now when you want to talk to your investors. <laughs> um, and all of that's compensable. All of that's, I don't know if it's worth $50 million, but it's worth something. And to just say you don't want to deal with them is a little short-sighted. And, well, and there are some concerns, though, that the IPO process isn't fair, so to speak. And, and Spotify did kind of make a point about that, um, about it being open to everyone. So normally in an IPO, as, as you definitely know, but maybe some of our listeners don't, is that um, it's kind of an exclusive group of investors who can buy in at the IPO price. And a lot of those gains you see on the first day, I mean, usually it goes up on the first day, but a lot of that's relative to that price that the exclusive group of investors got. And it's not your average retail investors or, or, or people buying on the stock market. And so some people feel like that's not fair. However, it is done as sort of a stabilization idea. I mean, the, it's expected that a lot of these people are going to hold it longer or these institutional investors might hold the shares longer. The, yes. The, the textbook first day pop, that increase in price, the first mm-hmm. day pop is 15%. And if you talk to an institution- like often more. <laughs> well, it, it's often more because those are the ones you hear about. And those are the ones you guys write about and talk about. We write about all of them. Well, I have a two-word <laughs> answer to those that think it's not fair. Blue Apron. Yeah. Okay. Right, I mean, totally. it can go the other way too, and people yeah. don't talk about that as often. Right. But the reason you have that built-in fifteen percent pop, ideally, is you're 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 compensating under you're compensating in investors for taking risk. The stock is unseasoned; it's never traded before. Totally. Who knows what's going to happen? Okay, give me something to make it worth my while. Otherwise, yeah. I can go buy a publicly traded stock that's not an initial and idea. that has a dividend yield on top. Of it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm of the belief, and we've talked about pops at length on our podcast before. <laughs> yes. But I'm of the belief that you price it so that it holds a until its first earnings or something like that, so that so that the share price holds until then, at the very least. Ideally, if you um, if you miss your first quarter, you spend the next couple of years in litigation. Sorry, no, Snap actually did that. Snap. That's it. Snap is a good example. And Facebook, that people don't remember, but Facebook had a very I trouble. I uh, remember. Uh, yeah, Facebook you know, had first a few quarters were not year, great. First year, but it's doing great. <laughs> yes. Well, it was until kind of Q4 of last year. I feel. Yeah. But if you bought in the IPO, you're still fine. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. You're still you're doing up, it. And by the way, and by the way, if you weren't allocated shares that first day and you bought 2 months later, you're even better off. So one thing though that's also different. Well, there's there's a bunch of things that are different about this. But one thing that's that's also different about this is that it's consumer tech. I mean, we're talking about Snapchat and Blue Apron because it's been a while since we've seen any consumer tech IPOs. Yes. Really aren't very many. It's pretty much all enterprise these days. Do you think that's going to change? I think you well I think you and you've seen it in the first quarter with a pretty relatively speaking robust IPO calendar initially on the enterprise side. I think you'll see more of the consumer companies lining up. I think Spotify will calm people down and will induce some of these consumer tech companies to move forward. But the principal reason there hasn't been uh, a, a, an abundance of consumer tech IPOs is there's been so much cash in these private funds that have been willing to fund these companies that for the most part are still losing money. And that has been the story for the last Five years, I feel. Yeah, I mean, it. There were, yeah, there was a flurry of um, consumer tech IPOs a few years back, but uh, really, right now we have a lot of consumer tech companies, private companies that have high, really sky high valuations, but they're not about to go anytime soon. Um, well, at least not this year. No, we don't no, have no. Uber this year. We won't have Airbnb this year. We, but Pinterest is still, you know, we far off. Have Pinterest this year. Uh, 
But, you know, maybe next year. But I feel like we've been saying next year for a while. We, for we have days. been for a lot of those yeah. companies. But Dropbox finally got off the lists and got live. But, you know, one thing I've... Although they're... Are they consumer? Are they enterprise? But anyway. <laughs> well, I mean, they're, they're next, but one thing that I love to, to think about when we think about the current value of Spotify in the market and how well it's done is the Pandora comparison. Yeah, and so an before we started recording, we pulled up the numbers. And um, according to Yahoo Finance, so check this yourself, because um, we learned that lesson pretty quick, <laughs> Pandora's trailing revenue multiple is 0.8 according to Yahoo Finance. And we did the math ourselves, and Spotify is around 5, 5.2. It's a huge price arbitrage. And we were saying a little earlier that if you like this business model of either ad-supported or subscription music, consumer-driven music, one of these two companies is mispriced. You can either say that Pandora is being undervalued or Spotify is being overvalued, but both can't be fairly accurately priced today anyway. But These they could are both change. be incorrectly priced today. They, they could, could be. They could both be too far in the extreme. Absol- absolutely. But even if truth is in the middle, you would short one and go along the other, mm. right? Which one would you short? Well, I don't want to speak ill about all of these companies or any of these companies, but I think Spotify has more of a downward bias in the next six months um, where it could be a year or two from now. Who knows? I'm curious. I mean, I, I, it'll be fun to see how that bears out because the direct listing has been the experiment kind of of the year financially for us. Well, and so from a product perspective, um, they have, you know, they definitely compete with each other. But from a business model perspective, they're pretty different. Um, Pandora has set fees that they negotiate every few years um, across various artists and and agencies, whereas Spotify, it's a more costly business, actually, where they have to negotiate things separately. Um, And there's also less certainty about their expenses because they're instead of having a flat fee across the board, they they have separate agreements that are always coming up with different artists and artist management companies. But um, that said, people definitely like Spotify as a product. And so I think that's part of why you have investors who are looking to buy um, Spotify because it's a a product that they know and they love and they expect that it's going to be more popular and going to get more users. But um, I don't know. Personally, I think that it's really a risky business to be in – music because um, the fees are just so expensive and unpredictable. I mean, as we saw, Spotify has almost roughly $5 billion in revenue, but they're losing over a billion well, they also, on they, top of that. They so, have positive cash flow in the last last year, I think. So there's positive operating cash flow, sorry. But I mean, Amazon just announced that they've doubled their music subscribers in the last year or something like that. And so you're, the competition part's insane. I mean, they've And got, Apple Music yeah, is also a thing. Yeah, and so... Uh, not they to had, mention Tidal, which apparently is still a thing. They, they had to acknowledge in their F1 that they're at a disadvantage to companies like Apple that have an operating system that can build all of this into their... All the iPhones, the Apple Watches, et cetera. And none of these companies, to be clear, have proven that they have a, a viable long-term business yet. I mean, the jury's out, in all fairness, but they've been losing a lot of money. And it's very hard where your suppliers, in this case music content, are so concentrated. Um, and you're in a space that is, is competitive where there's so many alternative channels to get essentially the same content. Yeah. Well, music companies are known for being litigious or uh, anti-technology, so I'm sure they're going to be really, really great operating partners for Spotify <laughs> down the road. <laughs> I'm sure they will. They're still clinging to CDs. Yes. Everything's going to be fine. To be clear, that was sarcasm. I know. If it didn't convert, that was not being serious. Well, thanks for tuning in. Come back later this week. 
All right, everyone. We want to say a special thanks to our producer, TechCrunch's own Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickavet. Thank you to Katie Roof. Thank you to Matthew Lindley. And thank you to you for leaving us that five-star iTunes review. That's Equity. We'll see you all next Friday. Thank you.